CD5 Why, said Ginger icily, am I lying on a camel? Search me, didn't you want to? She slid down onto the sand and tried to adjust her costume. At this point, they both became aware of the audience. There was Dibbler, there was Dibbler's nephew, there was the handleman, there were the extras, there were the assorted vice-presidents and other people who were apparently called into existence by the mere presence of moving picture creation. Some of them have clipboards. There was Gaspode the Wonder Dog. And everyone, except for the dog, who was sniggering, had his mouth open. The handleman's hand was still turning the handle. He looked down as if its presence was new to him and stopped. Dibbler seemed to come out of whatever trance he was in. <laughs> he said. Blimey! Magic, breathed Sol. Real magic. Dibbler nudged the handleman. Did you get all that? he said. Get what? said Ginger and Victor together. Then Victor noticed Morris sitting on the sand. There was a sizable chip out of his arm. Rock was troweling something into it. The troll noticed Victor's expression and gave him a sickly grin. Think you're cooing the barbarian, do you? he said. Yeah, said Rock. There was no call to go calling him what you called him. And if you're going to do fancy sword work, we're replying for an extra dollar a day, having bits chopped off allowance. Victor's sword had several nicks on the blade. For the life of him, he couldn't imagine how they'd got there. Look, he said desperately, I don't understand. I didn't call anyone anything. Have we started filming yet? One minute I'm sitting in a tent. Next minute I'm breathing... Camel, said Ginger petulantly. Is it too much to ask what is going on? But no one seemed to be listening to them. Why can't we find a way of getting sound, said Dibbler. That was damn good dialogue there. Didn't understand a word of it, but I know good dialogue when I hear it. Parrots, said the handleman flatly. You're common Hawandaland green. Amazing bird, memory like elephant. Get a couple of dozen in different sizes... And you got a full vocal. That launched a detailed technical discussion. Victor let himself slide off the camel's back and ducked under its neck to reach Ginger. Listen, he said urgently. It was just like last time, only stronger, like a sort of dream. The handleman started to take pictures and it was just like a dream. Yeah, but what did we actually do? she said. What you did, said Rock, was gallop the camel up to the tent, leap off, come at us like a windmill. Leaping on rocks and laughing, said Murray. Yeah, you said to Murray, have at you, you foul black guard, said Rock, and then you caught him a right ding on the arm, cut a hole in the tent. Good sword work, though, said Murray appraisingly. A bit showy, but pretty good. But I don't know how to, Victor began. And she was lying there all long grass, said Rock, and you swept her up, and she said, Long grass, said Ginger weakly. Languorous, said Victor. I think he means languorous. She said, Why, it is the thief of... the thief of... Rock hesitated. Dad's bag, I think you said. Bag's dad said Murray, rubbing his arm. Yeah, and then she said, You are in great danger, for my father has sworn to kill you. And Victor said, But now, O oh fairest rose, I can reveal that I am really the shadow of the desert. What's languorous mean? said Ginger suspiciously. And then he said, Fly with me now to the Casbah, or something like that. And then he gave her this, this, this thing humans do with their lips. Whistle, said Victor, with a hopeless hope. Nah, the other thing sounds like a cork coming out of a bottle, said Rock. Kiss, said Ginger coldly. Yeah, not that I'm in a judge, said Rock, but it seemed to go on for a while. Definitely very, <clears throat> you know, kissy. I thought it was going to be bucky to water time myself, said a quiet canine voice behind Victor. He kicked out backwards, but failed to connect. 
And then he was back on the camel and dragged her up, and Mr Dibbler shouted, Stop, stop, what the hell's going on? Why won't anybody tell me what's going on? said Rock. And then you said, What happened? Don't know when a last source sword play like that, said Morrie. No, said Victor. Well, thank you. All that shouting, ha! And have at you, you dog! Very professional, said Morrie. I see, said Victor. He reached sideways and grabbed Ginger's arm. We've got to talk, he hissed, somewhere quiet, behind the tent. If you think I'm going anywhere alone with you, she began. Listen, this is no time to start acting like... A heavy hand settled on Victor's shoulder. He turned and saw the shape of detritus eclipsing the world. Mr. Dippler doesn't want anyone running off, he said. Everyone has to stay... "'Until Mr. Dibbler says.' "'You're a real pain, you know,' said Victor. "'Detritus gave him a big gem-studded grin. "'Troll's teeth are made of diamond. "'Mr. Dibbler says I can be a vice-president,' he said proudly. "'In charge of what?' said Victor. "'Vice-presidents,' said Detritus. Gaspode the Wonder Dog made a little growling sound at the back of his throat. The camel, which had been idly staring at the sky, sidled around a bit and suddenly lashed out with a kick that caught the troll in the small of the back. Detritus yelped. Gaspode gave the world a look of satisfied innocence. Come on, said Victor, grimly, while he's trying to find something to hit the camel with. They sat down in the shade behind the tent. I just want you to know, said Ginger coldly, that I have never attempted to look longerous in my life. Could be worth a try, said Victor absently. What? Sorry, look, something made us act like that. I don't know how to use a sword. I've always just waved it around. What did you feel like? You know how you feel when you hear someone say something and you realise you've been daydreaming? It was like your own life fading away and something else filling up the space. They considered this in silence. Do you think it's something to do with holy wood? she said. Victor nodded. Then he threw himself sideways and landed on Gaspode, who had been watching them intently. Yelp, said Gaspode. Now listen, Victor hissed into his ear. No more of these hints. What is it that you noticed about us? Otherwise it's detritus for you, with mustard. The dog squirmed in his grip. "'Or we could make you wear a muzzle,' said Ginger. "'I ain't dangerous,' wailed Gaspode, scrabbling with his paws in the sand. "'A talking dog sounds pretty dangerous to me,' said Victor. "'Dreadfully,' said Ginger. "'You never know what it might say.' "'See, see,' said Gaspode, mournfully. "'I knew it'd be nothing but trouble showing I can talk. "'It shouldn't happen to a dog.' "'But it's going to,' said Victor.' "'Oh, all right, all right, for what good it'll do,' muttered Gaspode. Victor relaxed. The dog sat up and shook sand off himself. "'You won't understand it anyway,' he grumbled. "'Another dog would understand, but you won't. "'It's down to species experience, see? "'Like kissing. "'You know what it's like, but I don't. "'It's not a canine experience.' He noticed the warning look in Victor's eyes and plunged on. The way you look as if you belong here. He watched them for a moment. See? See? He said. I told you you wouldn't understand. It's... It's territory. See? You got all the signs of being right where you should be. Nearly everyone else here is a stranger, but you aren't. Hmm. Like you must have noticed where some dogs bark at you when you're new to a place. It's not just smell. We got this amazing sense of displacement. Like, some humans get uncomfortable when they see a picture on crooked. It's like that, only worse. It's kind of like, the only place you ought to be now is here. He looked at them again and then industriously scratched an ear. What the hell, he said. The trouble is, I can explain it in dog, but you only listen in human. It sounds a bit mystical to me, said Ginger. You said something about my eyes, said Victor. Yeah. Well, have you looked at your own eyes? Gaspode nodded at Ginger. You too, miss. Don't be daft, said Victor. How can we look at our own eyes? Gaspode shrugged. You could look at each other's, he suggested. 
They automatically turned to face each other. There was a long, drawn-out moment. Gaspode employed it to urinate noisily against a tent peg. Eventually, Victor said, Wow. Ginger said, Mine too. Yes, doesn't it hurt? You should know. There you are, then, said Gaspode, and you look at Dibbler next time you see him. Really, Luke, I mean. Victor rubbed his eyes, which were beginning to water. It's as though Holywood has called us here, is doing something to us, and has... has... Branded us, said Ginger bitterly. That's what it's done. It, uh, it does look quite attractive, actually, said Victor gallantly. Gives them a sort of sparkle. A shadow fell across the sand. Ah, there you are, said Dibbler. He put his arms around their shoulders as they stood up and gave them a sort of hug. You young people always going off alone together, he said archly. Great business, great business, very romantic, but we've got a click to make and I've got lots of people standing around waiting for you, so let's do it. See what I mean, muttered Gaspode very quietly. When you knew what you were looking for, you couldn't miss it. In the centre of both of Dibbler's eyes was a tiny golden star. In the heartlands of the great dark continent of Clatch, the air was heavy and pregnant with the promise of the coming monsoon. Bullfrogs croaked in the rushes, but were edited out of the finished production, by the slow brown river. Crocodiles dozed on the mudflats. Nature was holding its breath. A cooing broke out in the pigeon loft of Azural Nkoit, stock dealer. He stopped dozing on the veranda and went to see what had caused the excitement. In the vast pens behind the shack, a few threadbare bewilderbeasts, marked down for a quick sale, yawning and cudding in the heat, looked up in alarm as Nkoit leapt the veranda steps in one bound and tore towards them. He rounded the zebra pens and homed in on his assistant, Mbu, who was peacefully mucking out the ostriches. <laughs> How many? He stopped and began to wheeze. Mbu, who was twelve years old, dropped his shovel and patted him heavily on the back. <laughs> How many? He tried again. You've been overdoing it again, boss, said Mbu in a concerned voice. How many elephants we got? I just done them, said Mbu. We got three. Are you sure? Yes, boss, said Mbu evenly. It's easy to be sure with elephants. Azural crouched in the red dust and hurriedly began to scrawl figures with a stick. "'Old Muluka is bound to have half a dozen,' he muttered, "'and Tazikal's usually got twenty or so, "'and then the people on the Delta generally have... "'Someone want elephants, boss? "'Got fifteen head, he was telling me, "'plus also there's a load at the logging camp probably going cheap. "'Call it two dozen. "'Someone want a lot of elephants, boss?' Was saying there's a herd over Tetse Way. Shouldn't be a problem, but then there's all the valleys over towards. Mbu leaned on the fence and waited. Maybe two hundred, give or take ten, said Azural, throwing down the stick. Ah, oh, nowhere near enough. You can't give or take ten elephants, boss, said Mbu firmly. He knew that counting elephants was a precision job. A man might be uncertain about how many wives he had, but never about elephants. Either you had one or you didn't. Our agent in Clutch has an order for... Azarel swallowed. A thousand elephants. A thousand. Immediately. Cash on delivery. Azarel let the paper drop to the ground. To a place called Ankh-Morpork, he said despondently. He sighed. It would have been nice, he said. Mbu scratched his head and stared at the hammerhead clouds massing over Mount Fatwangi. Soon the dry veldt would boom to the thunder of the rains. Then he reached down and picked up the stick. What are you doing? said Azurel. Drawing a map, boss, said Mbu. Azurel shook his head. Not worth it, boy. Three thousand miles to Ankh, I reckon. I let myself get carried away. Too many miles. Not enough elephants. We could go across the plains, boss, 
said Mbu. Lot of elephants on the plains. Send messengers ahead. We could pick up plenty more elephants on the way. No problem. That whole plain just about covered in damn elephants. No, we'd have to go around on the coast, said the dealer, drawing a long curving line in the sand. The reason being there's the jungle just here, he tapped on the parched ground, and here... He tapped again, slightly concussing an emerging locust that had optimistically mistaken the first tap for an onset of the rains. No roads in the jungle. Mbu took the stick and drew a line straight through the jungle. Where a thousand elephants want to go, boss, they don't need no roads. Azarel considered this. Then he took the stick and drew a jagged line by the jungle. But here's the mountains of the sun, he said, very high, lots of deep ravines, and no bridges. Mbu took the stick, indicated the jungle, and grinned. I know where there's a lot of prime timber just been uprooted, boss, he said. Yeah? Okay, boy, but we've still got to get it into the mountains. It just so happened that a thousand real strong elephants will be going that way, boss. Mbu grinned again. His tribe went in for sharpening their teeth to points. Not for any particular religious reason, they just rather liked the effect when they grinned. He handed back the stick. Azural's mouth opened slowly. By the seven moons of Nazrim, he breathed. We could do it, you know. It's only, oh, thirteen or fourteen hundred miles that way. Maybe less even. Yeah, we could really do it. Yes, boss. You know, I've always wanted to do something big with my life, something real, said Azurel. I mean, an ostrich here, a giraffe there. It's not the sort of thing you get remembered for, he stared at the purple-gray horizon. We could do it, couldn't we, he said. Sure, boss. Right over the mountains. Sure, boss. If you looked really hard, you could just see that the purple-gray was topped with white. They're pretty high mountains, said Azurel, his voice now edged with doubt. Slope go up, slope go down, said Mbu, nomically. That's true, said Azurel. Like, on average, it's flat all the way. He gazed at the mountains again. A thousand elephants, he muttered. Do you know, boy, when they built the tomb of King Leonid of Ephib, they used a hundred elephants to cart the stone, and two hundred elephants, history tells us, were employed in the building of the palace of the Roxy in Clatch City. Thunder rumbled in the distance. A thousand elephants, Azaral repeated. A thousand elephants. I wonder what they want them for. The rest of the day passed in a trance for Victor. There was more galloping and fighting and more rearranging of time. Victor still found that hard to understand. Apparently, the film could be cut up and then stuck together again later so that things happened in the right order. And some things didn't have to happen at all. He saw the artist draw one card, which said, In the King's Palace, one hour later. One hour of time had been vanished, just like that. Of course, he knew that it hadn't really been surgically removed from his life. It was the sort of thing that happened all the time in books. And on the stage, too. He'd seen a group of strolling players once, and the performance had leapt magically from a battlefield in Tussort to the Ephibian fortress that night, with no more than a brief descent of the sackcloth curtain and a lot of muffled bumping and cursing as the scenery was changed. But this was different. Ten minutes after doing a scene, you'd do another scene that was taking place the day before, somewhere else, because Dibbler had rented the tents for both scenes and didn't want to have to pay any more rent than necessary. You just had to try and forget about everything, but now, and that was hard when you were also waiting every moment for that fading sensation. It didn't come. Just after another half-hearted fight scene, Dibbler announced that it was all finished. "'Aren't we going to do the ending?' said Ginger. You did that this morning, said Sol. Oh. There was a chittering noise as the demons were let out of their box and sat swinging their little legs on the edge of the lid and passing a tiny cigarette from hand to hand. The extras queued up for their wages. The camel kicked the vice president in charge of camels. 
The handlemen wound the great reels of film out of the boxes and went away to whatever arcane cutting and gluing the handlemen got up to in the hours of darkness. Miss Cosmopolite, vice-president in charge of wardrobe, gathered up the costumes and toddled off, possibly to put them back on the beds. A few acres of scrubby backlot stopped being the rolling dunes of the great Neff and went back to being scrubby backlot again. Victor felt that much the same thing was happening to him. In ones and twos, the makers of moving picture magic departed, laughing and joking, and arranging to meet at Borgles later on. Ginger and Victor were left alone in a widening circle of emptiness. "'I felt like this the first time the circus went away,' said Ginger. "'Mr. Dibbler said we were going to do another one tomorrow,' said Victor. "'I'm sure he just makes them up as he goes along. "'Still, we got ten dollars each. "'Minus what we owe Gaspode,' he added conscientiously. "'He grinned foolishly at her. "'Cheer up,' he said. "'You're doing what you've always wanted to do.' "'Don't be stupid.' "'I didn't even know about moving pictures a couple of months ago. "'There weren't any.' "'They strolled aimlessly towards the town. "'What did you want to be?' he ventured. "'She shrugged. "'I didn't know. "'I just knew I didn't want to be a milkmaid.' "'There had been milkmaids at home. "'Victor tried to recollect anything about them. "'It always looked quite an interesting job to me, milkmaiding,' he said vaguely. "'Buttercups, you know, and, and fresh air.' It's cold and wet, and just as you finish, the bloody cow kicks the bucket over. Don't tell me about milking, or being a shepherdess, or a goose girl. I really hated our farm. Oh. And they expected me to marry my cousin when I was fifteen. Is that allowed? Oh, yes, everyone marries their cousins where I come from. Why? said Victor. I suppose it saves having to worry about what to do on Saturday nights. Oh. "'Didn't you want to be anything?' said Ginger, putting a whole sentence worth of disdain in a mere three letters. "'Not really,' said Victor. "'Everything looks interesting until you do it. Then you find it's just another job. I bet even people like Cohen the Barbarian get up in the morning thinking, "'Oh, no, not another day of crushing the jewelled thrones of the world beneath my sandaled feet.' "'Is that what he does?' said Ginger, interested despite herself. "'According to the stories, yes.' Why? Search me. It's just a job, I guess. Ginger picked up a handful of sand. There were tiny white shells in it, which stayed behind as it trickled away between her fingers. I remember when the circus came to our village, she said. I was ten. There was this girl with spangled tights. She walked a tightrope. She could even do somersaults on it. Everybody cheered and clapped. They wouldn't let me climb a tree, but they cheered her. That's when I decided. Ah, said Victor, trying to keep up with the psychology of this. You decided you wanted to be someone. Don't be silly. That's when I decided I was going to be a lot more than just someone. She threw the shells towards the sunset and laughed. I'm going to be the most famous person in the world. Everyone will fall in love with me, and I shall live forever. Well, it's always best to know your own mind, said Victor, diplomatically. You know what the greatest tragedy is in the whole world, said Ginger, not paying him the least attention. It's all the people who never find out what it is they really want to do, or what it is they're really good at. It's all the sons who become blacksmiths because their fathers were blacksmiths. It's all the people who could be really fantastic flute players, who grow old and die without ever seeing a musical instrument, so they become bad plowmen instead. It's all the people with talents who never even find out. Maybe they're never even born in a time when it's even possible to find out. She took a deep breath. It's all the people who never get to know what it is they can really be. It's all the wasted chances. Well, Hollywood is my chance, do you understand? This is my time for getting. Victor didn't. Yes, he said. Magic for ordinary people, Silverfish had called it. A man turned a handle and your life got changed. And not just for me, Ginger went on. It's a chance for all of us. The people who aren't wizards and kings and heroes. Hollywood's like a big bubbling stew, but this time different ingredients float to the top. Suddenly there's all these new things for people to do. Do you know the theatres don't even allow women to act? But Hollywood does. And in Hollywood there's jobs for trolls that don't just involve hitting people. 
And what did the handlemen do before they had handles to turn? She waved a hand vaguely in the direction of Ankh Morpork's distant glow. Now they're trying to find ways of adding sound to moving pictures, she said. And out there are people who'll turn out to be amazingly good at making, making, making soundies. They don't even know it yet, but they're out there. I can feel them. They're out there. Her eyes were glowing gold. It might just be the sunset, Victor thought, but... Because of Hollywood, hundreds of people are finding out what it is they really want to be, said Ginger, and thousands and thousands are getting a chance to forget themselves for an hour or so. This whole damn world is being given a shake. That's it, said Victor. That's what worries me. It's as though we're being slotted in. You think we're using Hollywood, but Hollywood is using us, all of us. How? Why? I don't know, but look at wizards. Ginger went on, vibrating with indignation. What good has their magic ever done anyone? I think it sort of holds the world together, Victor began. They're pretty good at magic flames and things, but can they make a loaf of bread? Ginger wasn't in the mood for listening to anyone. Not for very long, said Victor helplessly. What does that mean? Something real, like a loaf of bread, contains a lot of... Well, I suppose you'd call it energy, said Victor. It takes a massive amount of power to create that amount of energy. You'd have to be a pretty good wizard to make a loaf that'd last in this world for more than a tiny part of a second. But that's not what magic is really about, you see, he added quickly, because this world is... Who cares, said Ginger. Hollywood's really doing things for ordinary people. Silver screen magic. What's come over you? Last night. That was then, said Ginger impatiently. Don't you see we could be going somewhere? We could be becoming someone? Because of Hollywood, the world is our lobster, said Victor. She waved a hand irritably. Any shellfish you like, she said. I was thinking of oysters, actually. Were you? I was thinking of lobsters. I shouldn't have to run around like this at my age, thought the bursar, scurrying down the corridor in answer to the Arch-Chancellor's bellow. Why is he so interested in the damn thing anyway, wretched pot? Coming, master, he trilled. The Arch-Chancellor's desk was covered with ancient documents. When a wizard died, all his papers were stored in one of the outlying reaches of the library. Shelf after shelf of quietly mouldering documents, the haunt of mysterious beetles and dry rot, stretched away into an unguessable distance. Everyone kept telling everyone that there was a wealth of material here for researchers, if only someone could find the time to do it. The bursar was annoyed. He couldn't find the librarian anywhere. The ape never seemed to be around these days. He'd had to scrabble among the stuff himself. "'I think this is the last, Arch-Chancellor,' he said, tipping an avalanche of dusty paperwork onto the desk. Ridcully flailed at a cloud of moths. Paper, 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 he muttered. How many damn bits of paper in his stuff, hmm? Uh, 23,813, Arch-Chancellor, said the bursar. He kept a record. Look at this, said the Arch-Chancellor. Star enumerator. Rev counter for use in ecclesiastical areas. Swamp meter. Swamp meter! The man was mad. He had a very tidy mind, said the bursar. Same thing. Is it um, really important, Arch-Chancellor? The bursar ventured. Damn thing shot pellets at me, said Ridcully. Twice. I'm sure it wasn't um, intended. I want to see how it was made, man. Just think of the sporting possibilities. The bursar tried to think of the possibilities. I'm sure Rickshaw didn't intend to make any kind of offensive device, he ventured hopelessly. Who gives a damn what he intended? Where is the thing now? I had a couple of servants put sandbags round it. Good idea. It's... Vroom, vroom, vroom. It was a muffled sound from the corridor. The two wizards exchanged a meaningful glance. Whum, 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 whum. The bursar held his breath. Blip, blip, blip. The arch-chancellor peered at the hourglass on the mantelpiece. 
"'It's doing it every five minutes now,' he said. "'And it's up to three shots,' said the bursar. "'I'll have to order some more sandbags.' He flicked through a heap of paper. A word caught his eye. Reality. He glanced at the handwriting that flowed across the page. It had a very small, cramped, deliberate look. Someone had told him that this was because Numbers Rictor had been an anal retentive. The bursar didn't know what that meant and hoped never to find out. Another word was measurement. His gaze drifted upwards and took in the underlined title, Some Notes on the Objective Measurement of Reality. Over the page was a diagram. The bursar stared at it. "'Found anything?' said the Arch-Chancellor, without looking up. The bursar shoved the paper up the sleeve of his robe. "'Nothing important,' he said. Down below, the surf boomed on the beach, and below the surface the lobsters walked backwards along the deep-drowned streets. Victor threw another piece of driftwood onto the fire. It burned blue with salt. "'I don't understand her,' he said. "'Yesterday she was quite normal. "'Today it's all gone to her head.' "'Bitches,' said Gaspode sympathetically. "'Oh, I wouldn't go that far,' said Victor. "'She's just a loof.' "'Loofs,' said Gaspode. "'That's what intelligence does for your sex life,' said Don't Call Me Mr Thumpy. "'Rabbits never have that sort of trouble. "'Go so thank you do.' "'You could try offering her a mouse,' said the cat. "'Present company accepted, of course,' it added guiltily, "'trying to avoid definitely not Squeak's glare. "'Being intelligent hasn't done my social life any favours either,' "'said Mr Thumpy bitterly. "'A week ago, no problems. "'Now suddenly I want to make conversation "'and all they do is sit there wrinkling the noses at you. "'You feel a right idiot.' "'There was a strangulated quacking. "'The duck says, "'Have you done anything about the book?' said Gaspode. "'I had a look at it when we broke for lunch,' said Victor. There was another irritable quack. "'The duck says yes, but what have you done about it?' said Gaspode. "'Look, I can't go all the way to Ark Moorpork just like that,' snapped Victor. "'It takes hours. We film all day as it is.' "'Ask for a day off,' said Mr Thumpy. "'No one asks for a day off in Holywood,' said Victor. "'I've been fired once, thank you.' "'And he took you on again at more money,' said Gaspode. "'Funny that,' he scratched an ear. "'Tell him your contract says you can have a day off.' "'I haven't got a contract, you know that. "'You work, you get paid, it's simple.' "'Yeah,' said Gaspode. "'Yeah, yeah, yeah, a verbal contract, it's simple. "'I like it.' "'Towards the end of the night, Detritus the Troll "'lurked awkwardly in the shadows by the back door of the Blue Lias.' Strange passions had racked his body all day. Every time he'd shut his eyes, he kept seeing a figure shaped like a small hillock. He had to face up to it. Detritus was in love. Yes, he'd spent many years in Ankh-Morpork hitting people for money. Yes, it had been a friendless, brutalising life, and a lonely one too. He'd been resigned to an old age of bitter bachelorhood, and suddenly, now, Holywood was handing him a chance he'd never dreamed of. He'd been strictly brought up, and he could dimly remember the lecture he'd been given by his father when he was a young troll. If you saw a girl you liked, you didn't just rush at her. There were proper ways to go about things. He'd gone down to the beach and found a rock, but not any old rock. He'd searched carefully and found a large, sea-smoothed one with veins of pink and white quartz. Girls liked that sort of thing. Now he waited shyly for her to finish work. He tried to think of what he would say. No one had ever told him what to say. It wasn't as if he was a smart troll like Rock or Morrie, who had a way with words. Basically, he'd never needed much of what you might call a vocabulary. He kicked despondently at the sand. What chance did he have with a smart lady like her? There was the thump of heavy feet and the door opened. The object of desire stepped out into the night and took a deep breath, which had the same effect on detritus as an ice cube down the neck. He gave his rock a panicky look. It didn't seem anything like big enough now, when you saw the size of her. Maybe it was what you did with it that mattered. Well, this was it. They said you never forgot your first time. He wound up his arm with the rock in it and hit her squarely between the eyes. That's when it all started to go wrong. 
Tradition said that the girl, when she was able to focus again, and if the rock was of an acceptable standard, should immediately be amenable to whatever the troll suggested, i.e. a candle-lit human for two. Although, of course, all that sort of thing wasn't done anymore now, at least if there was any chance of being caught. She shouldn't narrow her eyes and catch him a ding across the ear that made his eyeballs rattle. "'You stupid troll!' she shouted, as to try to stagger around in a circle. "'What you do that for? You think I unsophisticated girl off mountain? Why you not do it right?' "'But, but,' detritus began in terror at her rage, "'I'm not able to ask father permission to hit you, not know where he living.' Ruby drew herself up haughtily. "'All that old-fashioned stuff very uncultured now,' she sniffed. "'It's not the modern way. I'm not interested in any troll,' she added. "'That not up-to-date. A rock on the head may be quite sentimental,' she went on, the certainty draining out of her voice as she surveyed the sentence ahead of her. "'But diamonds are a girl's best friend,' she hesitated. That didn't sound right even to her. It certainly puzzled detritus. "'What? You, you want I should knock my teeth out?' he said. Well, all right, not diamonds, Ruby conceded, but they're proper modern ways now. You got to court a girl. Detritus brightened. Ah, but I, he began. That's court, not court, said Ruby wearily. You got to, 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 she paused. She wasn't all that sure what you had to, but Ruby had spent some weeks in Holywood, and if Holywood did anything, it changed things. In Holywood, she'd plugged into a vast cross-species female Freemasonry she hadn't suspected existed, and she was learning fast. She'd talked at length to sympathetic human girls and dwarfs. Even dwarfs had better courtship rituals, for God's sake. All dwarfs have beards and wear many layers of clothing. Their courtships are largely concerned with finding out, in delicate and circumspect ways, what sex the other dwarf is. And what humans got up to was amazing. Whereas all a female troll had to look forward to was a quick thump on the head and the rest of her life subduing and cooking anything the male dragged back to the cave. Well, there were going to be changes. Next time Ruby went home, the troll mountains were going to receive their biggest shake-up since the last continental collision. In the meantime, she was going to start with her own life. She waved a massive hand in a vague way. You got to, got to sing outside a girl's window, she said, and, and, and you've got to give her oogla. Oogla? Yeah, pretty oogla. Trolls have 5,400 words for rocks and one for vegetation. Oogla means everything from moss to giant redwoods. The way trolls see it, if you can't eat it, it's not worth naming it. Detritus scratched his head. "'Why?' he said. Ruby looked panicky for a moment. She also couldn't for the life of her imagine why the handing over of inedible vegetation was so important. But she wasn't about to admit it. "'Fancy you not knowing that?' she said scathingly. The sarcasm was lost on Detritus. Most things were. "'Right,' he said. "'I'm not so uncultured as you think,' he added. I bang up to date. You wait and see. Hammering filled the air. Buildings were spreading backwards from the nameless main street into the dunes. No one owned any land in Holywood. If it was empty, you built on it. Dibbler had two offices now. There was one where he shouted at people, and a bigger one just outside it where people shouted at each other. Sol shouted at Handelmen, Handelmen shouted at alchemists, demons wandered over every flat surface and drowned in the coffee cups and shouted at one another, a couple of experimental green parrots shouted at themselves, people wearing odd bits of costume wandered in and just shouted. Silverfish shouted because he couldn't quite work out why he now had a desk in the outer office, even though he owned the studio. Gaspode sat stolidly by the door of the inner office. In the past five minutes he had attracted one half-hearted kick, a soggy biscuit, and a pat on the head. He reckoned he was ahead of the game, dog-wise. He was trying to listen to all the conversation at once. It was extremely instructive. For one thing, some of the people coming in and shouting were carrying bags of money. 
You what? The shout had come from the inner office. Gaspode cocked the other ear. I, uh, want a day off, Mr. Dibbler, said Victor. A day off? You don't want to work? Just for the day, Mr. Dibbler. But you don't think I'm going to go around paying people to have days off, do you? I'm not made of money, you know. It's not as if we'd make a profit even. Hold a crossbow to my head, why don't you? Gaspode looked at the bags in front of Sol, who was furiously adding up piles of coins. He raised a cynical eyebrow. There was a pause. Oh, no, thought Gaspode. The young idiot's forgetting his lines. I don't want paying, Mr. Dibbler. Gaspard relaxed. You don't want paying? No, Mr. Dibbler. But you want a job when you get back, I suppose, said Dibbler sarcastically. Gaspard tensed. Victor had taken a lot of coaching. Well, I hope so, Mr. Dibbler. But I was thinking of going to see what untied alchemists had to offer. There was a sound exactly like the sound of a chair back striking the wall. Gaspode grinned evilly. Another bag of money was dropped in front of Sol. Untied alchemists! They really look as if they're making progress with soundies, Mr. Dibbler, said Victor meekly. But they're amateurs and crooks! Gaspode frowned. He hadn't been able to coach Victor past this stage. Well, that's a relief, Mr. Dibbler. Why is that? Well, it'd be dreadful if they were crooks and professional. Gaspode nodded. Nice one. Nice one. There was the sound of footsteps hurrying around a desk. When Dibbler spoke next, you could have sunk a well in his voice and sold it at ten dollars a barrel. Victor! Vic! Haven't I been like an uncle to you? Well, yes, thought Gaspode. He's like an uncle to most people here. That's because they're his nephews. He stopped listening, partly because Victor was going to get his day off and was very likely going to get paid for it as well, but mainly because another dog had been led into the room. It was huge and glossy. Its coat shone like honey. Gaspode recognised it as purebred ram-top hunting dog. When it sat down beside him, it was as if a beautifully sleek racing yacht had slipped into a berth alongside a coal barge. He heard Sol say, So that is Uncle's latest idea, is it? What's it called? Laddie said the handler. How much was it? Sixty dollars. For a dog? We're in the wrong business. He could do all kinds of tricks, the breeder said. Bright as a button, he said. Just what Mr. Dibbler is looking for. Well, tie it up there, and if that other mutt starts a fight, kick it out. Gaspode gave Sol a long, thoughtful scrutiny. Then, when the attention was no longer on them, he sidled closer to the newcomer, looked it up and down, and spoke quietly out of the corner of his mouth. "'What you here for?' he said. "'The dog gave him a look of handsome incomprehension. "'I mean, do you belong to someone or what?' said Gaspode. "'The dog whined softly. "'Gaspode tried basic canine, which is a combination of whines and sniffs. "'Hello,' he ventured. "'Anyone in there?' "'The dog's tail thumped uncertainly. "'The grub here's ruddy awful,' said Gaspode. The dog raised its highly bred muzzle. What in this place? it said. This is Hollywood, said Gaspode conversationally. I'm Gaspode, named after the famous Gaspode, you know. Anything you want to know, you just... Oh, oh all these two legs here. Uh, what's this place? Gaspode stared. At that moment, Dibbler's door opened. Victor emerged, coughing, at one end of a cigar. "'Great, great,' said Dibbler, following him out. "'Knew we could sort it out. "'Don't waste it, boy. Don't waste it. They cost a dollar a box. <laughs> "'Oh, I see you brought your little doggy.' "'Woof,' said Gaspode, irritably. "'The other dog gave a short, sharp bark and sat up with obedient alertness radiating from every hair. "'Ah,' said Dibbler, and I see we've got our wonder dog. Gaspode's apology for a tale twitched once or twice, then the truth dawned. He glared at the larger dog, opened his mouth to speak, caught himself just in time and managed to turn it into a bark. 
I got the idea the other night when I saw your dog, said Dibbler. I thought people like animals. Me, I like dogs. Good image, the dog. Saving lives, man's best friend, that kind of stuff. Victor looked at Gaspode's furious expression. Gaspode's quite bright, he said. Oh, I expect you think he is said Dibbler, but you've just got to look at the two of them. On the one hand, there's this bright, alert, handsome animal, and on the other, there's this dust ball with a hangover. I mean, <laughs> no contest, am I right? The Wonder Dog gave a brisk yap. Uh, uh, what's this place? Good boy, laddie. Gaspode rolled his eyes. See what I mean, said Dibbler. Give him the right name, a bit of training, and a star is born. <laughs> he slapped Victor on the back again. Nice to see you, nice to see you. Drop in again any time, only not too frequently. Let's have lunch sometime. Now get out. Soul, come here, uncle. Victor was suddenly alone, apart from the dogs and the room full of people. He took the cigar out of his mouth, spat on the glowing end, and carefully hid it behind a potted plant. A star is whelped, said a small, withering voice from behind. What's he say? Where's this place? Don't look at me, said Victor. Nothing to do with me. Will you just look at it? I mean, are we talking thick or city here or what? sneered Gaspode. Good boy, laddie. Come on, said Victor. I'm supposed to be on set in five minutes. Gaspode trailed after him, muttering under his horrible breath. Victor caught the occasional, old rug, and man's best friend, and bloody wonder bloody dog. Finally, he couldn't stand it any longer. You're just jealous, he said. What of an overgrown puppy with a single-figure IQ, sneered Gaspode. And a glossy coat, cold nose, and probably a pedigree as long as your arm, well, as my arm, said Victor. Pedigree? Pedigree? What's a pedigree? It's just breeding. I had a father too, you know, and two grandads and four great-grandads, and many of them were the same dog even. So don't you tell me from no pedigree, said Gaspode. He paused to cock a leg against one of the supports of the new Home of the Century of the Fruit Bat Moving Pictures sign. That was something else that puzzled Thomas Silverfish. He'd come in this morning, and the hand-painted sign saying interesting and instructive films had gone, and had been replaced by this huge billboard. He was sitting back in the office with his head in his hands, trying to convince himself that it had been his idea. "'I'm the one Holywood called,' Gaspode muttered in a self-pitying voice. "'I came all the way here, and then they chose that great airy thing.' Probably it'll work for a plate of me today, too. Well, look, maybe you weren't called to Holywood to be a wonder dog, said Victor. Maybe it's got something else in mind for you. This is ridiculous, he thought. Why are we talking about it like this? A place hasn't got a mind. It can't call people to it. Well, unless you count things like homesickness. But you can't be homesick for a place you've never been to before. It stands to reason. The last time people were here must have been thousands of years ago. Gaspode sniffed at a wall. Did you tell Dibbler everything I told you? he said. Yes, he was very upset when I mentioned about going to untied alchemists. Gaspode sniggered. And you told him what I said about a verbal contract not being worth the paper it's printed on? Yes, he said he didn't understand what I meant, but he gave me a cigar and he'd said he'd pay for me and Ginger to go to Ark Moorpork soon. He said he's got a really big picture planned. What is it? said Gaspode suspiciously. He didn't say. Listen, lad, said Gaspode. Dibbler's making a fortune. I counted it. There were $5,273.52 on Sol's desk, and you earned it. Well, you and Ginger did. Gosh. Now, there's some new words I want you to learn, said Gaspode. Think you can? I hope so. Per cent age of the gross, said Gaspode. There, think you can remember it? Per cent age of the gross, said Victor. Good lad. What does it mean? Don't you worry about that, said Gaspode. You just have to say it's what you want, OK? 
when the time's right. When will the time be right, then? said Victor. Gaspode grinned nastily. Oh, I reckon when Dibbler's just got a mouthful of food, it'd be favourite. Holywood Hill bustled like an ant heap. On the seaward side, Firwood Studios were making The Third Gnome. Microlithic Pictures, which was run almost entirely by the dwarfs, was hard at work on Gold Diggers of 1457, which was going to be followed by The Gold Rush. Floating Bladder Pictures was hard at work with Turkey Legs, and Borgles was packed out. Well, I don't know what it's called, but we're doing one about going to see a wizard. Something about following a yellow sick toad, a man in one half of a lion suit explained to a companion in the queue. No wizards in Holywood, I thought. Oh, uh, this one's all right. He's not very good at wizarding. So, what's new? Sound. That was the problem. Alchemists toiled in sheds all over Holywood, screaming at parrots, pleading with minor birds, constructing intricate bottles to trap sound and bounce it around harmlessly until it was time for it to be let out. To the sporadic boom of octocellulose exploding was added the occasional sob of exhaustion or scream of agony as an enraged parrot mistook a careless thumb for a nut. The parrots weren't the success they'd hoped for. It was true that they could remember what they had heard and repeat it after a fashion, but there was no way to turn them off, and they were in the habit of ad-libbing other sounds they'd heard, or Dibbler suspected had been taught by mischievous handlemen. Thus, brief snatches of romantic dialogue would be punctuated with cries of Show us your knickers! And Dibbler said he had no intention of making that kind of picture, at least at the moment. Sound. Whoever got sound first would rule Holywood, they said. People were flocking to the cliques now, but people were fickle. Colour was different. Colour was just a matter of breeding demons who could paint fast enough. It was sound that meant something new. In the meantime, there were stopgap measures. The dwarf studio had shunned the general practice of putting the dialogue on cards between scenes and had invented subtitles, which worked fine, provided the performers remembered not to step too far forward and knock over the letters. But if sound was missing, then the screen had to be filled from side to side with a feast for the eyes. The sound of hammering was always Holywood's background noise, but it redoubled now. The cities of the world were being built in Holywood. Untied alchemists started it, with a one-tenth-size wood and canvas replica of the Great Pyramid of Tussort. Soon the back lots sprouted whole streets in Ankh-Morpork, palaces from Pseudopolis, castles from the Hublands. In some cases, the streets were painted on the back of the palaces, so that princes and peasants were separated by one thickness of painted sacking. Victor spent the rest of the morning working on a one-reeler. Ginger hardly said a word to him, even after the obligatory kiss when he rescued her from whatever it was Morrie was supposed to be today. Whatever magic Holywood worked on them, it wasn't doing it today. He was glad to get away. Afterwards, he wandered across the back lot to watch them putting Laddie the Wonder Dog through his paces. There was no doubt, as the graceful shape streaked like an arrow over obstacles and grabbed a trainer by a well-padded arm, that here was a dog almost designed by nature for moving pictures. He even barked photogenically. "'And do you know what he's saying?' said a disgruntled voice beside Victor. It was Gaspode, a picture of bow-legged misery. "'No, what?' "'Me, laddie, me, good boy, good boy, laddie,' said Gaspode. "'Makes you want to throw up, doesn't it?' "'Yes, but could you leap a six-foot hurdle?' said Victor. "'That's intelligent, is it?' said Gaspode. "'I always walk around. "'What's that they're doing now?' "'Giving him his lunch, I think. "'They call that lunch, do they?' Victor watched Gaspode stroll over and peer into the dog's bowl. Laddie gave him a sideways look. Gaspode barked quietly. Laddie whined. Gaspode barked again. There was a lengthy exchange of yaps. Then Gaspode strolled back and sat down beside Victor. Watch this, he said. Laddie took the food bowl in his mouth and turned it upside down. Disgusting stuff, said Gaspode. All tubes and innards. I wouldn't give it to a dog and I am one. You made him tip out his own dinner, said Victor, horrified. Very obedient lad, I thought said Gaspode, smugly. What a nasty thing to do. Oh, no, I'll give him some advice, too. Laddie barked peremptorily at the people clustering around him. Victor heard them muttering. Dog don't eat his dinner. 
came Detritus's voice. Dog go hungry? Don't be daft. Mr. Dibbler says he's worth more than we are. Perhaps it's not what he's used to. I mean, a posh dog like him and all is, is a bit yucky, isn't it? It's dog food. That what dogs are supposed to eat. Yeah, but is it wonder dog food? What are wonder dogs fed on? Mr. Dibbler will feed you to him if there's any trouble. All right, all right, Detritus. Go round to Borgles. See what he's got. Not the stuff he gives to the usual customers, mind. That is the stuff he gives to the usual customers. That's what I mean. Five minutes later, Detritus trailed back, carrying about nine pounds of raw steak. It was dumped in the dog bowl. The trainers looked at Laddie. Laddie cocked an eye towards Gaspode, who nodded almost imperceptibly. The big dog put one foot on one end of the stake, took the other end in his mouth and tore off a lump. Then he padded over the compound and dropped it respectfully in front of Gaspode, who gave it a long, calculating stare. Well, I don't know, he said at last. Does that look like ten percent to you, Victor? You negotiated his dinner? Gaspode's voice was muffled by meat. I reckon ten percent is very fair. Very fair in the circumstances. You know, you really are a son of a bitch, said Victor. Proud of it, said Gaspode indistinctly. He bolted the last of the steak. What shall we do now? I'm supposed to get an early night. We're starting for Ankh very early tomorrow, said Victor doubtfully. Still not made any progress with the book? No. Let me have a look, then. Can you read? Dunno, never tried. Victor looked around them. No one was paying him any attention. They never did. Once the handles stopped turning, no one bothered about performers. It was like being temporarily invisible. He sat down on a pile of lumber, opened the book randomly at an early page, and held it out in front of Gaspode's critical stare. Eventually the dog said, "'It's all got marks on it.' Victor sighed. "'That's writing,' he said. Gaspode squinted. "'What, all them little pictures?' Early writing was like that. People drew little pictures to represent ideas. So, if there's a lot of one picture, it means it's an important idea. What? Well, yes, I suppose so. Like the dead man. Victor was lost. The dead man on the beach? No, the dead man on the pages, see? Everywhere there's the dead man. Victor gave him an odd look and then turned the book around and peered at it. "'Where? I don't see any dead men.' Gaspode snorted. "'Luke, all over the page,' he said. "'It looks just like those tombs you get in old temples and stuff, you know, "'where they do this statue of the stiff lying on top of the tomb, "'with his arms crossed and holding his sword, dead noble.' "'Good grief, you're right. "'It does look sort of dead. "'Probably all the writing's going on about what a great guy he was when he was alive,' "'said Gaspode knowledgeably. You know, slayer of thousands stuff. Probably he left a lot of money for priests to say prayers and light candles and sacrifice goats and stuff. Used to be a lot of that sort of thing, you know. You get these guys oaring and drinking and carrying on regardless their whole life, and then when the old grim reaper starts sharpening his scythe, they suddenly becomes all pious and pays a lot of priests to give their soul a quick wash and brush up, and generally keep on telling the gods what a decent chap they was. Gaspode, said Victor, levelly. What? You were a performing dog. How come you know all this stuff? I ain't just a pretty face. You aren't even a pretty face, Gaspode. The little dog shrugged. I've always had eyes and ears, he said. You'd be amazed the stuff you see and hear when you're a dog. I didn't know what any of it meant at the time, of course. Now I do. Victor stared at the pages again. There certainly was a figure which, if you half-closed your eyes, looked very much like a statue of a knight, with his hands resting on his sword. "'It might not mean a man,' he said. "'Pictographic writing doesn't work like that. It's all down to context, you see.' He racked his brains to think of some of the books he'd seen. For example, in the Agatean language, the signs for woman and slave, written down together, actually mean wife.' He looked closely at the page. The dead man, or the sleeping man, or the standing man resting his hands on his sword, the figure was so stylized it was hard to be sure, seemed to appear beside another common picture. He ran his finger along the line of pictograms. See, he said. It could be the man figure is only part of a word. See, 
It's always to the right of this other picture, which looks a bit like... a bit like a doorway or something, so it might really mean... He hesitated. Doorway man, he hazarded. He turned the book slightly. Could be some old king, said Gaspode. Could mean something like, the man with the sword is imprisoned or something. Or maybe it means, watch out, there's a man with a sword behind the door. Could mean anything, really. Victor squinted at the book again. It's funny, he said. It doesn't look dead, just not alive. Waiting to be alive. A waiting man with a sword. Victor peered at the little man figure. It had hardly any features, but still managed to look vaguely familiar. You know, he said, it looks just like my Uncle Osric. End of CD 5